God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming again this week. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of James? That's where we've been studying for the last few weeks. And today we're in the very last chapter in the book of James, James chapter 5. That's where we're going to be, and we'll also show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about remembering holiness. Today, we're wrapping up the book of James, as we just said, and next week, we're going to be starting an unforgettable book that has long intrigued both the Jewish people and Christians alike. Next week, we'll be starting our Jewish journey through Hasefer Bereshit, which you know is the book of beginnings. Christians, English, you know it as the book of Genesis. And we're going to be going back and forth between the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and our Bidakadashah, the New Testament, as we go. And you don't want to miss this series in the book of beginnings. This is a foundation for everything that the Bible has for you. Is it a Jewish book? It's the first Jewish book. It's the most important Jewish book, really. And we're going to be wrapping up James and then next week going to this book of beginnings. Not only the beginning of the world and all creation, but the beginning of the Jewish people as well. We're going to be going through this book of beginnings and an amazing journey it's going to be. But for right now, let's take a look at our scripture in James 5 together. It says in James 5, verse 1, the, actually the first few verses talks about what James calls the rich oppressors. These are rich people who God will judge, not, just beca not because they're rich, but because they put their trust in wealth. They put their trust in earthly treasures and they defrauded other people to try to get more money. They had people working for them, and they didn't pay those people when they should have. They agreed to pay them, but then when it came time to give them that pay, they didn't pay them. And so James is now talking about these people for a few verses. And then we're going to talk about these verses for a little bit, but then we'll go on to a next section of verses in chapter 5 as we continue through James 5. And it will talk about a slightly different subject. And we'll read those verses and we'll talk about them. And then the next section we'll do the same thing on up to about four or five maybe sections in the book of James. So let's read now from James 5 verse 1. It says in James 5 verse 1, Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for your miseries that are going to come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure to yourself in these last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears 
of the Lord of Sebaot. Now, let me tell you what Sebaot means. Now, a lot of English speakers think that that's just another way of saying Shabbat or Sabbath. It's not. The Lord of Sebaot is another way that the Old Testament or the Tanakh says the Lord of hosts. What he's saying there is the Lord of hosts is the Lord of heaven's armies. Remember that one angel killed over 187,000 people from the enemy camp in one night. One angel. And the Lord is commander-in-chief over all of the armies of heaven. Armies of multitudes of angels. He is the commander of heaven's armies. And so when it says that his cry, the cries of these reapers who haven't received their wages have come up to the ears of the Lord of Sebaot, there's going to be trouble there. And verse 5 continues and it says, You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury, and you've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Remember, they would always uh, fatten the animals up before they would slaughter them to prepare them to be food. And these people have lived lives of pleasure and luxury on this earth, falsely taking the money from other people. And they've fattened up their hearts. They've fattened up their hearts as in the day of a slaughter. And verse 6 then wraps up this little section of the first six verses. And it says, You have condemned... And you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now what he's talking about there is you have unjustly dealt with these other people. You've killed those who you thought needed to be out of your way for some reason. Or that you could make more money somehow. Or they were telling people that you didn't pay them the wages that were due them. And, and you had them killed so that they wouldn't say these things about you. You've murdered the just. And he didn't resist you. He really couldn't resist you either. He's poor. He's weak. And that's what these first six verses are about. There are wealthy people in the Bible that were godly people. Think about King David. Hamelach David is how we say it in Hebrew. Hamelach David had made statements that he was poor. He made those statements to the Lord. But what he was saying was he was poor in spirit. He was a very wealthy man. Hamelach Shlomo was extremely wealthy. All this gold and possessions, all of these things. And yet he was a godly man in the first part of his life. It was a multitude of wives that brought him down as he followed their gods and started going after them and their gods instead of the true and living God. But for many, many years, he sought God and God had given him wisdom. He even wrote many of the Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. The wisest man who ever lived and that's what God said about him. Now, of course, he wasn't as wise as the Mashiach, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But that was God who became a man to save us. But among men, there was none wiser than Hamelech Shlomo. He was very wealthy. David was very wealthy. But yet these were both godly men in their times. And we see that there are godly men in the Bible who were wealthy. I've known some wealthy men in my life, who were very godly. 
I've known wealthy men who were not very godly. And it just depends. Jesus said it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And the disciples said, well, who then could be saved? Because they thought rich people are successful people and they would certainly be the ones who would be saved and get to enter into the kingdom of heaven because they had influence, they had wealth. But that's not how the kingdom of heaven works, you see. It works because God doesn't look on the outside. He doesn't look at your possessions. He doesn't look at your bank account. He looks at your heart. That's what he says. He said, God is not a man. I don't look at things like you do, he told the prophet. He said, man looks on the outside. He looks on the appearance, but God looks at the heart. So if he's looking at the heart, he's looking past all this wealth and all these other things. Is it possible for a rich man to go to heaven? Even Jesus said it was. It's more difficult. They have more temptations. They have more trials. They have more responsibilities of how they spend that money and the wealth that they have. They need to do godly things with it. They need to be responsible and they don't want to trust in their uh, the riches on earth or their earthly riches. They don't want to trust in their worldly pleasures. They don't want to trust in their bank account because you can't take it with you when you pass out of this life and you go over into the remainder of your life. Or if you believe on God's Messiah, you will go into the kingdom of heaven. But your wealth will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. You don't have more influence than anybody else because you're wealthy. In fact, you have a greater responsibility to show that you used your wealth in a way that pleased God. To where you didn't think of it as yours, but that you thought of it as a gift entrusted to you by God so that you could care for the poor and care for others. And so many godly people can have wealth. But yet it's still difficult. But James is specifically talking about these wealthy people in these first six verses that had defrauded. They had kept back the wages that were owed the laborers. These laborers had worked in their fields. They had mowed their fields. They had cut it down and cut it back and taken all the weeds out. And they had pruned the trees and harvested the crops. And then when it came time to get paid, these wealthy, evil people would not pay their laborers. And see, the people that were doing this work for the wealthy owners didn't have wealthy lawyers that they could use to sue these wealthy owners of the vineyards. Uh, and, and they couldn't do anything about it. They didn't have the money to fight this in a court. They didn't have any power. They didn't have soldiers like these wealthy people did many times. So they really couldn't do anything. And so they just went without food. They went without clothing. They went without medicine that they needed. All because that wealthy evil person didn't get them the wages that were due them. And so... That's a problem, you see, is when wealthy people don't use their wealth for good. And by the way, you could think of yourself in the same way. You could think of yourself as you've been given something. You've been given a heartbeat today. 
You've been given breath in your life today. And that's a wealth that you've been given by God. And you're going to be responsible for what you do with what He's given you in the same way. So make sure that you remember holiness. Make sure that you remember to do what God wants you to do with what He's given you. That heartbeat can stop just like that. That next breath might not ever come. God's given you a gift of life today. What are you doing with the gift that God's given you? So many times we take that for granted. We say, oh, well, I'm just young now. I still have all these years. My old heart's going to keep on beating. It's going to do fine. All those breaths are going to keep on coming. You never even stop to thank God for those things. But maybe when you get up every morning, maybe your knees should hit the floor before your feet hit the floor. And you thank God for a new day. And you say, God, I want to thank you for this new day that you've given me. And God, I give this new day to you and I pray that it will be used for your glory. Thank you for the heartbeats that you've given me. Thank you for the breaths that you've given me. Thank you for another opportunity to look around and see your wonders and have my mouth and my heart give you praise all day. You start your day with that, everything will change. Everything will change. You put your life in His hands and everything will change for the better. You just watch and see. Verse 7 then continues the next section of this chapter. And it says in verse 7, it says, Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and he waits patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now think about what he's saying here. He's saying now a different subject. He's not talking to the wealthy anymore, the evil wealthy. He's saying to you, the believers, you be patient, brothers. In other words, yeah, maybe someone didn't pay you what was due you. Maybe someone did you wrong. Maybe someone said something about you. Maybe someone took away something that was yours and you don't have any way to fight them back and get it back. James is saying to you, brothers, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He'll take care of those things. He'll set the account straight. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain? you also be patient. Now think about that. Think about that picture that he's showing us with the farmer. The farmer goes out, he prepares that land. He plows up that hard soil. He gets some seeds. He breaks up the dirt. Didn't have the tractors like we have now. Everything was done by hand or uh, you pull a plow behind the oxen or something. He breaks up that hard ground, has to soften it up, then digs a little trench there and then finds the seeds and then puts those seeds down in that little area that he's dug out and covers it over carefully, packs it down to where the wind just won't blow that dirt aside, but it'll, it'll protect that seed. And then he tries to water it. 
But keep in mind, they didn't have irrigation and sprinkler systems back then. Oh yeah, I mean, you could plant it by a spring or, or something like that and try to water it. But basically, you waited for the rainy season. And you waited for the early rain. That's the rain that happened because you planted it right before the rainy season came. That was the time that you did the planting. And then the early rains came. And that fed that little seed underneath the ground with moisture that soaked through the ground, picked up the mineral content from the soil around it, and that little seed absorbed that. But you didn't see anything happening on top of that dirt for a long time. But underneath the top of that ground, that seed was growing. It was making roots. And in the same way, don't you worry about being seen as a believer in Jesus Christ. Spend your time reading God's Word. Spend your time praying with Him. And your Father, as the Bible says, the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do the things that you do to please God. Not to be seen and approved by men. But do the things that you do to please your Heavenly Father. Let that growth be happening where it can't be seen. And later on, it will be seen. But even then, let your heart be set on God and pleasing Him. Don't be pleasing man, but please God. He says the early rain, the farmer waits for that, but then he doesn't just stop waiting. He doesn't look down after the early rain. He doesn't see anything come through the ground yet. And he goes, hey, what's going on? I put a seed in there and it's been six weeks, eight weeks, and I still don't see anything. What's happening? No, the farmer knows how it works. The farmer waits patiently for the early rain and then he waits for the latter rain. That's the rain that happens right before the harvest. And you know what? That latter rain is used to soak down into the ground. That plant is growing up through the ground and now it's grown and it starts to produce fruit. And that water in the latter rain is used to plump up that fruit, to make that fruit large and plump and ripe and ready to be eaten and to be used by the farmer to sell in the marketplace to provide food for his own family. The farmer knows how it works. You plant it and then you wait patiently, not only for the early rain, but also for the latter rain. And then if you do that and you wait patiently, you're going to receive the fruit. So it says in verse 8 now, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Let your heart be established in the things that God is doing. Establish your hearts. Have faith in God. The farmer can't do anything about that seed when it's planted in the ground. It's in God's hands. He just looks up. He says, God, please give us rain. He can't do anything. He can't take that seed out of the ground and try to attach some little roots to it or something and put it back. He can't sing to that seed and cause it to have a happy heart so it'll grow up. None of that works. He trusts in God. And so now in verse 8, he's saying, You also be patient. Establish your heart. Trust in God, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then in verse 9, he goes into another section. And he's basically saying in this coming section, Be patient. Don't grumble and judge others. 
verse 9, he says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job, and you've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he's saying right now in verses 9 through 11, he's saying, be patient. But notice what he says. He starts talking about not grumbling against one another. Why would he, why did, why would he be talking about grumbling against one another? Because a lot of times when things don't go the way that we like them, when, we, when things don't happen the way that we expected them to happen, what do we do? We start trying to blame other people. And we grumble against other people. Well, this wouldn't have happened if you didn't do that. Or I tried to do this, I waited, but you didn't do your part. And you start trying to blame other people. And you do that for a couple of reasons. Number one is you do that because you refuse to blame yourself for any problems. But number two is maybe you do that because you're not used to being patient. God's timing is different than your timing, brothers and sisters. You know that already. He doesn't always do things at the time when you think He should do things, does He? He doesn't even do things in your last minute. Have you noticed that sometimes God does things after your last minute has come and gone? Because his last minute to do something is different than yours. He knows when the opportunity really is leaving. And he knows when that window of opportunity has to be dealt with at that time. He knows the perfect timing for everything that he's going to give you and everything that he's going to do for you and with you. Just remember that. His time clock is the accurate time clock. Your time clock is just a guess. And it's a hopeful guess. You hope he'll do something early. You'll hope he'll do something as soon as you pray for it. He may take a while. Is that okay with you? What if he took a while to answer your prayer and left you in a difficult situation, but then after he answered your prayer and you look back and you go, wow, if he would have answered my prayer when I wanted him to, there would have been a big problem back there because I would have done this and lost everything. Or, See, God is watching out for you. Why don't you trust Him? Don't become angry and grumble against another person. If you want to grumble against someone, why don't you look in the mirror? You say, God, I know I've been impatient. God, please forgive me for that. God, I give everything to you. I leave it in your hands. I know your timing is perfect, Lord. Why don't you just take it and just do what you want with my life? That prayer that I gave you, you know whether it's the best thing to give me or not. You know when to answer that prayer and when not to answer that prayer. God, I know you love me and you're all powerful and you even know the future. So I just give it all to your hands, God. Look in the mirror. Don't point that finger at somebody else. Point that finger at you in the mirror and say, say to yourself, you need to trust God more. You need to change. It's no one's fault. God will do it when He's ready. And you should be happy with that. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Remember what the Bible says in Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so what does that also mean? If you're not merciful, you don't receive the mercy. You see? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now let's put that in the context of verse 9. Blessed are those who don't condemn, for they won't be condemned. Same thing. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The real judge, you're not the judge who judges other people for what they might have done or not done. The real judge is standing at the door. He's ready to come in the door. God is the judge of all of us. Don't judge that you don't be judged. Judge not so that you will not be judged. That's what the scripture says. He's standing at the door. Don't you be trying to judge the people. They're servants of God. They're children of God. They're creation of God. And you're not responsible for judging them. You take care of your own life. Let God be the judge. He says in verse 10, My brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Now, this is a special message for my Jewish brothers and, and sisters. You know that it's not popular to be a believer in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, in Israel, among the Jewish people. It's not popular. Did you ever realize that in the Tanakh, almost all of the prophets suffered persecution at the hand of the Jewish leaders because they were bringing a message that God had sent them to bring but it wasn't a popular message. And so the Jewish leaders said, that's not how we do things around here. We do it this way and this way and this way. And so they wouldn't receive the message of the Lord. Again today, there are many Jewish people in society, though I love them all. They are my Jewish brothers and sisters. I was born into a Jewish family. I am Jewish. I love them greatly. I pray for them all the time. But there are many that have been intimidated by society, by others who are saying like, you better not believe in Yeshua or we won't talk to you anymore. Even your own family says, you can't meet with us as a family member anymore if you believe in Yeshua. It's not a popular message. But here's the thing. That's not important. Man might separate you. Men might cast you away. But didn't they do the same thing with the prophets of God in the Tanakh? Yes, they did. They suffered persecution. They suffered separation and severe physical torment and persecution because of their faith in God's word, because of their faith in God. When you choose to serve the Lord, don't expect everyone to think of it as the right thing to do. It's not a popular thing to be a child of God. Oh, it's a great blessing to have the Lord taking care of you in life and guiding you through each day and blessing you and doing miracles in your life and giving you everlasting life and forgiving your sins and lifting all that guilt off of you. It's a wonderful life for you as a child of God. But don't expect for approval from the world. The world 
hates God. And your example may be the very thing that is needed for your family to see an example of someone who has God's peace in their hearts, who has God's love covering them, who feels a joy and an overcoming sense of, of victory in everything that they face just because your example is in that family, that might be the very thing that they need to give their life to the Lord as well. You may be the only word of God that they ever read. If you're living the life of the words in the pages of the word of God, you may be the only way that they ever see what some of the word of God says. As you live it out, you're a book. It's written all over your life. And they see God's love in your life. They see His salvation in your life. They see the joy He gives you. They see the patience He gives you. They see how you forgive others even when uh, they did you wrong. They see the love that you have. And they know that love only comes from God. And they may see your example and want to know the Lord that you know. So be that example. Don't be trying to live like the world. You're not special anymore if you do that. You're not unique anymore. You don't have a message if you just blend in with the world. But let the world see that you're different. Let the world see that something's different about you, that you have the Spirit of the Lord in your life. He says in verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Endure. Enough said. We count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We all know the story of Job. Oh yeah, he went through severe trials. But in the end, he was better. He was better God healed the hurt. He blessed him even more than he had been blessed before. And before he was a very blessed man. And because of his example, think about this. Billions of people through the centuries have looked and seen the love of God and compassion of God through the life of Job. And they understood God more clearly because of what happened to Job. The next verses talk about making oaths. Now, in verse 12, it says, But above all, brothers, don't swear, even by heaven or by earth or any other oath. That's not talking about swearing like cursing and cuss words and things like that, naughty things that you shouldn't be saying, speaking that way. It's saying don't swear. It's talking about swearing an oath. He says, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, here's what we're saying here. There were times in the Bible where you could make certain oaths. And you had to fulfill those oaths if you made them. And if you didn't, that was sin. So it's better not to make the oath. But James is specifically talking to people who are so certain 
Have you ever known those people? You say like, make sure you do this and remember to do this. And you go, oh, I'm going to do that. Don't you worry about a thing. I'll do that. I promise you I'll do that. And then they don't do it. Well, that just makes you look unreliable. It makes you look like you didn't follow up with what you said you were going to do. And it makes you look bad. But what was the real problem in that? That person who made that promise was trusting in his own strength. That person who made that promise was trusting in his own memory to do those things and his own strength. Oh, he felt so good about it. Maybe he had just drank his coffee an hour earlier and he was feeling so energetic. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Don't you worry at all about it. But then later, you know, maybe that coffee wore off or something. He, and he's good. he was thinking about other stuff and he forgot. Or maybe he was too tired. Or maybe something happened and he became sick and couldn't do what he had promised to do. The whole reason that thing failed in that oath that he made was because he was trusting in his own strength, his own memory, his own resources. And that right there is the problem. Because when you trust in yourself and you make those oaths, you're trusting in someone who is unreliable. The Bible says, have no confidence in the flesh. Don't have any confidence in your flesh. Let your trust be in God. Let your assurance be in the Lord Himself. Put it all in His hands. So as it said in the verses that we read before, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Just make the best guess that you can, but don't trust in your own strength. You'll fall into judgment. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And instead of trusting in you, trust in God. God gave the church everything it needs to survive and to thrive. And that's what James is saying in these next verses. He's saying that there's things that God has put into place to help and to heal the believer. In verse 13 it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing songs. Psalms, rather. If anyone is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So confess your sins, your trespasses to one another, it says in verse 16. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Then it says, Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, was a man with nature like ours. And yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, it says in verse 18, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So what these verses are saying, if you think about it, is that God has made provisions for the church. In other words, the community of believers, He's made provisions for them to be cared for no matter what situation they're in. Verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This is how you handle that. You pray. God's listening to your prayer. He's a healer of our bodies. He's a savior of our souls. Is anyone cheerful? 
Let him sing psalms. As you sing psalms, other people hear those. They hear about the praises going up to God in those psalms. That's what they were meant to do is be songs of praise to God. So are you suffering? Pray. Bring it to God. Are you cheerful? Sing those psalms. Glorify God for your cheerfulness, for the things that you're feeling, the joy that you're feeling. If you're sick, let call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. God says anointing that person with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. God has put all these things in place in the church to take care of the believers. He's put all of these things there so that you could be taken care of. He wants to take care of you. And there he says in verse 16 then, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Nobody wants to talk about all their things that they've done wrong to someone else. And so sometimes when people read that verse, they say, well, I know what I'll do. I won't mention anything specific. I'll just say, pray for me, brother. I'm going through a lot of stuff. I've made some mistakes. I need help. God wants you to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. If you tell a person specifically what you're going through, that person can pray specifically for what you're going through. You see what I'm saying? But if you just tell him, oh, I'm just going through some stuff, keep me in prayer. Okay, then here's what that guy's prayer is going to sound like for you. God, I pray for my brother. He's going, for some, he's going through some stuff. I just want to keep him in prayer. Thanks, God. Would you want him to pray more intensely than that? Would you want him to pray more fervently than that? Then let him know. And then if you are one of those persons that these sins are being confessed to, don't you go out and gossip and tell other people, you know what that guy told me he was doing? He's doing this and this and this. Can you believe that? No, you have a solemn responsibility before God to keep that in confidence and you pray for that person who entrusted his needs to you. He trusted you to keep it confidential and to pray for him before the throne of God. He didn't tell you to go out and talk about it to everybody else and gossip. He said, would you carry this before the throne of God so that God would forgive me and I would be healed? It says the effective fervent prayer in verse 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you're talking to someone who you consider to be a righteous person, and listen, we're all only righteous because of the blood of Jesus the Messiah. As we believe on Him, our sins are atoned for. If you're talking to someone that you believe has a good prayer life before the Lord, and you want Him to pray for you, to pray for you and your needs, then you're looking at that person, seeing, will He be an effective pray per, prayer person for me? Will He be a fervent prayer before the throne of God on my behalf? Will He? Pray for me like it's happening to him because I want that kind of a person to pray for me. And when that effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man 
comes up before the throne of God, it says it gets stuff done. It avails much. That's how verse 16 says it. It says in 17, now Eliyahu is how we say the name Elijah, Elijah in Hebrew. Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, Hanavi, Ha, the, Navi, prophet. Eliyahu Hanavi was a man with a nature just like ours. And yet he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain in the Tanakh. We see the story. He prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. Now think about this. He could have been reluctant. He could have said, well, I don't know. I mean, what if God doesn't come through? What if this isn't from the Lord? And I pray that it's not going to rain for three years and six months. And, and then it rains next week. And it rains like for a month after that. And it doesn't stop raining. The streets all get flooded and everything. That's going to make me look pretty foolish. But he had the word from the Lord. He prayed about it. He had a good prayer life himself. He talked to God. And God talked to him. By the way, that's the way prayer is. And God gave him this message. You tell them, it's not going to rain for three years and six months. Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, just knew in his heart, this is what God wants me to do. I just can't shake it. You know what I mean? I just can't get this out of my mind. It just keeps coming back over and over again. I know it's what God wants me to do. Have you ever noticed those things about when God has put something on your heart? He just keeps bringing it before your remembrance until you do it. And then it says in verse 18, And Eliyahu prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What I'm saying is, what God's saying here is pray for one another. And trust God in prayer. Then the last section in verse 19 and 20 simply says, Don't turn from God. And recognize the tragedy of turning from God. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, it says in verse 19, and someone turns him back, then let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, I know we have a lot of people talking about the theology of once saved, always saved. And they say, well, is it possible to fall out of salvation? And You know, you can read a lot of scriptures in the Bible, but here's a good one right here. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that's all I'll say about it. I think it's very clear on that. And what it's saying is, if you have a friend who knows the Lord, you've seen him in church, you think he's a believer, he seemed to be a believer, and now you see him doing these terrible things and living in sin, don't just ignore that. You go to him as someone who's trying to rescue him Turn him back any way you can. Talk to him. Pray with him. Pour out your heart. Do everything you can. God put you there for that person. God put you there and let you see what that person is going through so that you could be the person to go to him and try to talk him into returning to the Lord. 
Verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that's our chapter for the day. You know, as we said earlier, the book of James, just like the book of Hebrews that we studied earlier, was originally written to the Jewish believers. It was the hope of every truly Jewish person to wait for HaMashiach, the Messiah. And believing on and waiting for the Messiah is actually one of the 13 key things that defines being Jewish. It defines this and it was listed by Rambam, the Jewish sage, and also according to the Bible. It says that, I will wait for the Messiah, and though he tarry, my soul will eagerly await him. That's what Rambam said, one of the 13 tenets of what it means to be Jewish. Isn't it strange that many Jewish people today no longer wait for the Messiah? They're no longer thinking about the Messiah. They've been told to instead spend their time observing Jewish feast days and holidays, saying these words, reading from a siddur, a Jewish prayer book. Instead, and they don't look for the Messiah. But holidays can't save you. Only believing in God's Messiah can save you. And God became a man to save you from your sins, and He requires us to believe that He did that and confess Him before men in order to be saved. I know it's not popular in Israel today, but neither was the message of the Jewish prophets in the Tanakh when they brought it to the Jewish leaders in their day, as we said earlier. They were rejected and persecuted and sometimes killed. But our people today no longer wonder about this Savior, this Messiah that God promised to send. The one that the prophet Yeshayahu Hanavi, Isaiah the prophet, said would save the people from their sins. You see, nothing is more important than having your sins forgiven. Because without the forgiveness of your sins, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot receive everlasting life. And that's one thing you don't want to miss. Jesus said in John 14, 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Believing on God's Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, is what you must do to be saved. There's nothing more Jewish than believing on the Jewish Mashiach. The Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. Why don't you give your life to Him today? Let Him make you into a new creation where all the old things are passed away where all things have been made new, a new start. All those sins forgiven, wiped away because of God's great love for you. God became a man, gave his life for you, that your sins might be washed away. And then you can enter into his holy kingdom and have everlasting life in an unimaginable existence, filled with wonder and amazement forevermore. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Messiah today and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can just repeat after me. 
pray, God, I do want to know you. I do want to have real peace in life. I believe on your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A seed's been planted deep down in your heart. Just like we talked about today with that farmer, over time, you'll see that seed grow and begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your heart. You get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him every day in His Word. You talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life.